On a bitterly cold winter's morning, you're walking across Waterloo Bridge on your way to work. As you reach the midway point over the grey, fast-flowing Thames, something unusual catches your eye. You notice the figure of what appears to be a young man holding onto the railings on the wrong side. Hundreds of busy commuters pretend not to see what's right in front of their eyes. Some know what is going on, but don't know what to do, or internally question whether to get involved or not. One man stops to see if he can help. This is the story of The Stranger on the Bridge, of how two totally unconnected worlds collide and changed both forever. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London Legacy. Sunday the 13th of January, 2008. I can't stay in this place, but I can't stay at home. I'm just going insane. Why can't they just declare me insane? That's what I am. God, why on earth did you put me here? My mind won't be still. Why give me this brain, this, this pained and agitated brain? I'm back at square one in the mess I came in. Take out these veins of mine and stop the blood flow to my head. Then maybe all the voices will go to sleep and I will fall into my bed. Wow. So, I mean, that's pretty, I mean, to hear you actually read that yourself. I've read that poem, that diary entry myself in your book, and it's, it's tough to read even for me, but to sit here with you, Johnny, hearing you read that gets me very emotional. Mm. So I don't, I don't know how you feel reading that now. If I'm completely honest, it kind of feels like it was someone else that wrote that, if that makes sense. A lot of my old diary entries, I read them back and it's like, it wasn't me. It's very strange. It's, it's very strange. It feels like, yeah, it was someone else that wrote them, you know, cause I am in a, a, a different place now so it's yeah it feels very strange to to go back and to 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 read them especially to to read them out loud very strange very strange sad obviously but yeah strange strange to read them so i thought we'd open with that uh, as i say that's a diary entry the day before my guest today johnny benjamin took himself off to waterloo bridge um to do the unthinkable we say unthinkable but it's 80 odd males who take their lives every day of the year in this country i believe so it's not that unthinkable it's very very real so i want to introduce everybody to my guest today who is johnny benjamin it's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have you here looking so well johnny on this lovely beautiful day in uh, soho yeah not a bad place to be air-conditioned office yeah it does help it's <laughs> yeah. so hot outside i mean i'm yeah not complaining but it is really hot it's seriously very hot. hot, very yeah. hot. So we're, we're very lucky to be in our air-conditioned office here today. And as I say, it's an absolute delight to have Johnny here with me. John has been incredibly busy the last few years, and it's been not easy to, to pin you down no. to get you to come along. No. Um, but finally, we managed to get hold of you. And um, thank, you for, thank you for obliging, because I, I've already had people saying, can't wait to hear the interview. Thank you. So that was you back in January the 13th, 2008. Mm. Yeah. And that's an extract taken from your book, uh, The Stranger on the Bridge, mm. which we'll talk about shortly. Mm-hmm. So how old were you when you wrote that diary entry? So I was 20. Uh, I was 20. I was just about to turn 21. I was, well, I, I was at university, but I'd had to drop out because I was really unwell. And I was in hospital. I was in a hospital in, in North London when I wrote that. About a month before I'd been diagnosed with um, schizoaffective disorder, which is this condition that's a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar. And yeah, I was in a really, really, really dark place, very dark place. 
yeah, yeah, it felt like the end, absolutely. So let's just go go back a bit, just fill in some of the gaps from your from your youth. I mean, you grew up in was it Northwest London, mm. Northwest London, Northwest London, yeah, Northwest London in um, a place called Stanmore. Yeah, so know it well. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, I grew up in in Stanmore. Grew up uh, mum, dad, older brother, and um, well, from the outside, I had a normal childhood. You know, typical family unit. First school, primary school, and then on to secondary school, and I did well in school, and you know everyone thought that yeah I was going to be successful. Because you were quite academic, weren't you? You were quite good really with your academic. studies. Yeah, I was very academic as a kind of actually as a kind of escape. But there was always something I don't know. Um, there was always something different, I guess. I mean, I my parents they took me to see a child psychologist very early on. What sort of age were you? So I was about I think it was four or five. When they first took me. Four um, or five. So they must have been concerned about something in your behavior because at four or five, you wouldn't have been able to sort of express your concerns about your own mental health, no. presumably. So what was it that they saw in you that, they, that concerned them? Well, I wasn't sleeping. I suddenly, suddenly stopped sleeping. And now, now I can articulate. I was um, seeing things that weren't there. <laughs> I was seeing what I thought was uh, the, the BFG, the big friendly giant. Roald Dahl's, Roald Dahl's character from the book, the BFG. Uh, and I was hearing things and I, I, was, I, I wouldn't sleep. I was, I was very scared, very um, anxious, quite violent as well. And yes, yeah, so my parents just kind of didn't understand my behavior and what was going on. And that's when they took me to see this, this child psychologist. I picked up in the book that we'll talk about as well. You said you were violent. I've, I've written down destructive. Mm, mm. Just what are some of the examples of when you sort of trashed friends' houses or... <laughs> Some of the things you did, at yeah, the age. yeah. You know, I was, um, <laughs> I had this toy, this small kind of gremlin toy. <laughs> I used to uh, go around the house breaking things, or I'd go to friends' houses and put toothpaste on the carpet and bleach on the walls, and I'd say it was this purple gremlin, this this toy. Uh, again, looking back, it's very strange. Um, I did, I almost believed it was it didn't feel like it was me that was causing this destruction it felt like it was this toy that was kind of in control but again i guess at that age i couldn't articulate what was going on and people around me were just a bit baffled as to why i was so destructive but yeah i was i had this um or the toy had this very uh <laughs> destructive and yeah quite violent i would i remember one time i tried to my, my dad I, I i shut his hand in a door but it wasn't just a you know just a check it was really slamming what on purpose hand. yeah yeah on purpose i remember it why do you think you did that? I mean, was that, again, was that a voice or something telling you? Or you just had this instinct, you mm, felt you had to do it? No, it was more of an instinct. I just felt, I think I had a lot of anger. I can't explain maybe why. I had a lot of anger. And yeah, I just, I felt like I wanted to lash out. <laughs> Which is, uh, yeah, quite strange for a, for a three, four-year-old to, to do, I suppose. I just had this, this yeah, this, this kind of destructive instinct, which thankfully isn't there today. Thankfully, yeah. So your parents took you to see um, a psychiatrist, psychologist? Psychologist, Psychologist yeah. at an early age. Yeah. And what was the upshot of that? To be honest, my, my memory of that is quite... I don't have a very good memory of that. Uh, I mean, I remember her, funnily enough. I remember her and, you know, she was a, quite an older lady. And there was something about her that scared me. She really scared me. And I complied with... You know, she set these rules for me and these kind of... Um, I had to do this, I had to do that. I had to go to bed at this time and... I, I, I was scared of her, so I, I remember I 
complied with with everything she so sort of behavioral do. skills for, mm. your, for your parents to try and manage your behavior i guess at, yeah at that it age. was yeah. it was and yeah i guess they they worked i did start sleeping properly and um I, I started behaving better i suppose i always i still always felt very very different growing up and um alien to i went to my my first school was an all-boys school and i just i felt very very different to everyone else growing up i wasn't a lot of the boys in the school were, were very sporty and they'd be outside at, at break time playing sports and i'd just be on my own um in the library yeah it was just just felt extremely different as you said, I think in the book, well, I think it came across that you had a very sort of more flamboyant sort of personality, which probably didn't fit in with the no. the male, alpha male sort of boy playground kicking footballs around. No, not and at I all. I also went to a, an all-boys school mm. and, you know, so I can sort of understand if yeah. you didn't fit in with that all-male yeah. culture, you know, rugby playing, cricket, football, <laughs> school. It's not for you. What, what, what do you do with no. your, What do you do with your lunch breaks? It's tough. No, exactly. And that's why my mum, actually, she... She enrolled me in a, a drama class um, when I was about six because, well, you know, she didn't know what to do with me, I suppose. I was very uh, creative and I had a wild imagination and I wasn't playing sport. I didn't have many friends. So she thought, well, you know, let's try sort of a more creative outlet, which worked actually, which worked. So what, you, you put on some performances and you were for the public? I mean, how, how did you get on with that being yeah. on stage? And No, I did. I I. I was at this kind of drama school quite a few years and I, I, I yeah, we did performances and we did exams, uh, exams in speech and, and, and drama and yeah, um, and I loved it. I remember I loved it. I loved it. It was my favorite time of the week was 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 doing that. And in school, you know, again, I excelled in, in drama and English and sport, not so much, but yeah, the creative side, I, I, I loved it. I loved it. I was always very, very, very creative. Um, and that was my kind of outlet. So at what point did you start to think, hang on a second, there's something a bit more seriously wrong and start to understand mental health as a possible issue with yourself? Was it when you went to university or was it prior to that? I think I knew something was wrong in my mid-teens. In my mid-teens, things became very, very difficult. I was um, about 15, 16. Um, I started getting just incredibly low moods didn't I just didn't understand what was going on just felt extremely low um there was no reason for it there was no explanation I just was was really low and I was very tearful and um yeah I didn't understand it and then on top of that there was this well firstly there was a I was I was delusional but I didn't know it was you know I didn't know I was delusional I thought I was in um a tv show uh, a bit like the Truman Show, you know, the film The Truman Show. Well, con- constantly had that feeling? Yeah. What, that you were being watched? You were like a pawn in a game of some description, like a, an yeah. actor? Yeah. Yeah, but it didn't feel... I kind of... I, I liked this idea of... After I saw that film, The Truman Show, I quickly became convinced that I was, I was in my own version of that uh, a film. And um, I like... Yeah, I liked it. I liked it, I have to say, because, you know, in the, in the film... Jim Carrey's character is so well loved. Uh, everything goes his way. He has a what? What I saw, he he had a good life. You know, I know he was being watched, but he, everything went his way. And I just thought, if I'm on my own version of this TV show, then everything will go my way as well. And um, and I misread things. I would always misread things. You know, I'd 
if I, I always had this thing, I'd be thinking of someone, a person at school, and, and they'd come around the corridor and just I misread things like that. I'd be I'd become convinced that you know they were in my head and they they you know. Um, so you, you thought it was more than just a coincidence if you thought something yeah. had happened. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I misread, or you know, I heard a song in my head that was always playing, and it, it came on the radio, and I was just like, well, they're in my head. You know, they're in my head, and they're controlling things, and um, and to me, that just seemed kind of normal. It became normal, which might sound very strange, but <laughs> and yeah, there was an element of me quite liking it because uh, I went to a very big um, secondary school, very very big, big Jewish secondary school, and um, it was very easy to get lost in that school. Uh, I was, I just felt extremely invisible. I was, um, I mean, yeah, I was very academic, but it's the same school my daughter went to. Oh wow, okay, J- JFS, I JFS, think, yeah, that's right, yeah. 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 Big, big jump, big change from primary school. Yeah, big change. Big, and if you don't, change. if you don't fit in, if you're uncomfortable there, mm. yeah, you can absolutely. get very easily lost. Yeah, so. uh, you can, you can. And I did, and but I thought if I'm on this TV show, then I, you know, then I will be seen and I will be liked yeah. essentially. And did did you talk to people about this feeling, or was that you, this is just something? You, I mean, you thought it was so normal. Did you think other people were having the similar experience, or you just kept it to yourself because? Well, I thought that you know everyone knew. But I was on this TV show, so I I didn't think there was a need to to, to talk to them. And it, actually, I thought it would it might spoil things if I spoke, you know, because in the film The Truman Show, uh, eventually he finds out he's on this TV show, and then it kind of all goes a bit wrong. So I didn't want to talk about it because um, I was scared it would kind of go wrong for me as well. But yeah, in my mid-teens, it became more difficult. Because there was that, but there was also um, in my mid-teens, around 15, 16, again, I started to get what I know now is a, is a voice. But for me then, I thought it was, I didn't think of it as a voice. I thought of it as I kind of had a, a character with me. A, a, so this is a specific, specific yeah. character, a specific auditory yeah. Yeah. auditory hallucination, I guess, that, yeah. you, that you heard specific to yeah. you. But yeah. yeah, back then again, I didn't. I didn't see it as that. I didn't know what a hallucination was or auditory. Did that freak? I mean, it must have freaked you out. Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. It was horrible. But the most horrible thing was what it was telling me to do um, or how it was tormenting me. And it really did torment me um, in my mid teens. You know, it's, it, so it began to tell me to do things uh, always in threes. I'd have to, <laughs> there was like a mantra, words I'd have to say three times or else I'd be punished or someone I loved would be punished. Uh, or I'd have to touch something three times, always things in threes I'd have to do. And that's when, well, I mean, life became really, really, really difficult because, and I, I didn't, I did not want to talk to anyone about that because I was, I really thought, you know, that I was, I was sort of being plagued by the devil. I'd obviously done something wrong and I was scared that people would, uh, what they would do to me if, if, if they found out I was yeah, hearing this voice. But did anyone a- approach your, suggest to you that, Johnny, your, your behavior is a little bit odd or do they come up to you and sort of say things to you like that? My best friend at the time, my best friend did. I was about 17 now, I think I was 17. And he was concerned. You know, my I was laughing less. I wasn't seeing him as much. I was I was quieter. I was much quieter. I was really wrapped up in my own world. And, and he suggested, you know, going to the doctor. And I'm very grateful to him that he did because I don't know if I would have done otherwise. And, we, and I did go to the doctor 
I did go to the doctor. With, with, with your parents? No, no, no. no this, this parents. Was, so your parents weren't no. aware of any of this at, at this time? No, no, no. I didn't, I didn't want my parents to know because I was doing really well in my, in my GCSEs, in my exams, and then in my, in my A-levels, I was, I was doing well and I was, you know, I was going to go off to university and I had this really bright career ahead, I thought, and everyone else thought. So I didn't want my parents to, to know what was going on. So it was all done in secret. And I went to the doctor and the doctor referred me on to a specialist who, again, I went to see on my own. But yeah, it was, it was, it was quite terrifying because I didn't know what would happen and, and, and where I was going to end up. And, but I didn't really get anywhere with, uh, with the specialist. I mean, big problem uh, is, is the waiting lists for, for mental health treatment. And I waited and I waited um, after this first appointment and... I just, I gave up waiting. Well, this had been a referral to CAMS or something mm. at the time, so being a young, CAMS, young yeah. adolescent at the time. Yeah, mm. yeah. And the waiting uh, lists are still horrific. They're horrific, yeah. yeah they're horrific at, at a really crucial time. And so, and so I gave up. I gave up waiting and I kind of said to myself, well, you know, it's fine. It's going to pass and I'm going to go to university and I'll, that will solve everything. I, I had this plan to move to Manchester, um, a few hundred miles away to go to university and that was going to really sort of solve everything I believed. So that's, that was what I had in my head. I was going to do that and it was all going to be fine. Seems to be an amazing amount of overlaps between our lives in some respects. I mean, yeah. You went to JFS, my sister's got schizophrenia, as you know. I went to Manchester where I studied as oh, well. Right. Okay, wow. <laughs> it was quite bizarre. Yeah, very my, bizarre. My parents involved in mental health. Absolutely, Jamie, yeah. which you're involved with, all come onto that as well. It's quite, quite, uh, quite uncanny. Yeah, very. <laughs> so... Is there anything significant until you get to university or you just you got yourself into university? No, I got myself into yeah. university. What were you studying up there? Drama. drama. I did drama, yeah. which was... Must have been a godsend for you, really. Or yeah, yeah. I, oh my goodness. Like, drama was my escape. If I didn't have drama, the theatre, I would have... Uh, I don't know what, what I would have done, to be honest. It was my escape. You know, I could... I threw myself into, into my course. I was always the first one there, the last one to leave because it was my... Um, yeah, it was my escape. It was my escape from reality and um, loved it. I absolutely loved it. And um, But on the outside, I mean, away from university, everything was falling apart. Um, my moods were getting worse. I was starting to self-harm and, and starting to uh, misuse alcohol. But, you know, every day I'd still, I'd, no matter what was happening, I'd still turn up to university and I would throwing myself into my, my work and but no one yeah again no one knew what was happening uh family my new friends um I, I was going to my doctor in secret very soon after I arrived at university I began to go to my doctor and say look I you know something's not right this is this isn't right I don't know what to do and we started they started me on on, on medication in my in my first year but it did lift my mood a bit I remember but why were you self-harming was that a voice telling you to do that was just because you were felt so depressed and miserable was the only way you could sort of check in with your own feelings or something or what? See, I, I remember quite vividly the first time I did it was at university. I was in my first year and I, I, it, I, was, I was at university. It was a typical day and it was, it was lunchtime. It was lunchtime and I just, I don't think I'd felt so depressed before and I just felt like I needed to lash out but I couldn't lash out on anyone around me so I felt like I 
uh, I wanted to lash out on myself and I I got some scissors from the canteen and I went to the toilet and and I don't know I just um I just felt like I I I had to do that and and once I started it was kind of uh strangely addictive um strangely addictive were you shocked at your own behavior I mean or did you just think this this is me this is how I've got to if I've got to get on in life mm. this is how I've got to be from now on to to, to manage it Oh yeah, I, I was shocked. I was shocked at, at my behaviour, but I just thought I kind of I deserved it, and I, as I said, it was kind of addictive, strangely addictive. I, I wouldn't say I liked it, but yeah, there was something that was that, that kept drawing me to it. Gave you some sense of pleasure, I suppose, in, in the act of doing it. A degree of control, perhaps. Over. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, that's that's very fair to say. Control, because I didn't have control over. <laughs> It didn't feel like I had control over very much else. I was starting to quite um, public outbursts and um, and that was scaring me. So yeah, I guess that's the, I, I did. I felt like I had control over this, um, and I could also control people seeing it. So you know, because I was crying out for for some help, and sometimes I would uh, you know I would roll down my sleeves a little bit so people could see because I, as I said, I was desperate for help. And of course, people would say to me, you know, what's going on, but. I clammed up when people asked, you know, what was going on? Are you okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just stress. It's, it's a lot of stress. So it's, almost like, it's almost like you want people to see you, you got a problem, mm. but you don't want to go to the next stage mm. because that's quite scary to mm. actually deal with it, head yeah, on, and confront really scary, it. Yeah, really scary. Uh, there was so much going on. I mean, um, I haven't mentioned, but I was really struggling with my sexuality. Big, big problem for me coming from Jewish background. I, I, I was terrified about people finding out so yeah there was a, there was a lot there was a lot going on that so you've I got two with. key things going on in your life at a hugely sensitive time of your life your mental health issues and your mm. sexuality mm. neither of which your closest family i assume your brother's included in this didn't didn't, yeah, didn't no, know no, anything no. about it no i wouldn't so you're holding all this in which is really tough yeah it was it was very tough but i just thought that was the way to do it really i mean obviously now i know it very differently but yeah I just thought that was the way I had to I had to do it I had to and I always kind of said to myself it will will pass you know this this has to this has to pass maybe you know I really sometimes I just thought well one day I'll wake up and it will be better which obviously yeah it does does not happen but um ultimately you know ultimately of course I was something was gonna kind of I could only take so much and ultimately I did have a massive breakdown in my in my third year in my final year and yeah looking back i'm not surprised i mean i'm surprised it didn't happen earlier to be honest but yeah i just um i had this this well actually there was a i guess a pivotal moment when i had a car accident in my third year and i i mean it was it was a minor car accident but it was it kind of almost um triggered me into like this kind of psychosis where i sort of lost control over my physical being I, I started to say things that weren't my words and I started to I, I ended up on a on a on a on a road in the middle of a road screaming shouting uh, I thought it felt like I was being controlled from the inside I thought the devil was now inside me and yeah that was obviously a horrible horrible experience That's really very scary, scary. Yeah. yeah it was it was very scary because so this was now November 2007 and it was a freezing cold freezing cold night and I was just walking and walking and walking down the middle of this road and screaming and shouting and 
Yeah, I, compl- I felt like I completely lost it at that point. So is that at the point, round about the point you came home and went, was se- were you sectioned at this point? No, I wasn't no, sectioned. No. I went into You went in voluntarily. Voluntarily. Uh-huh. But it was at that point that I was got my diagnosis, this schizoaffective disorder. And for me, just getting that diagnosis felt like um, a life sentence. It kind of felt like the end. And being put into this psychiatric hospital, it was very hopeless. It was very hopeless. And, and, having, to, and having people now find out, because obviously everyone found so out. So now your family know. Yeah. And obviously now. desperately shocked. Yeah. And I'm guessing as well, now they know, you almost feel guilty that they know, and you're putting them yeah, through exactly. stuff which you've been uh, keeping from them for yeah, so many years. absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. There was a huge amount of guilt towards my parents, my brother, my, 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 whole, my whole family, my friends. I felt like I'd lived a lie. I just, I was just, and, 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 and in terms of future, I just, I saw no future really because, um, you know, I'd, I'd been doing so well. I'd, I, was, I was in my last year of university and I'd had to drop out, you know, I'd had to go home and I was so embarrassed and I thought, well, <laughs> I'm never going to get to go back. And I just, there was just so many things going on and, too much going on too much going on really and you know now i was in hospital then i was put on these all these medications and started to do group therapy and that was a big shock having to sit in a room with people and i was expected to talk but i just i, I really could not i didn't know where to start i didn't have the language and i, I yeah I, I gave up i, I you know I, I, I quickly gave up i think in, in that hospital um so they, you were presumably medicated or sedated or antipsychotic medication, mm, mm. a combination of a bit of everything. Yeah, a bit of everything. Yeah, and yeah. I, was, I was kind of like a bit of a zombie, really. And, and you know, my psychiatrist was, was really sort of trying to push me on my sexuality, which was another thing, obviously, that could not talk about and could not come to terms with, and as well as my mental health. And just the combination of those things, that this, my sexuality and my mental health, and it just was too much. It was too much for me. It was just too much, too much for me. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't, could not deal with it. it was, I just wanted to, well, yeah, end it really. Because it just, it just, I just, for me, I thought that was the only way out, really. Where else was I going to go? I mean, I was in hospital and there was, I couldn't leave. I, I, yeah, there was just, it was, it was hopeless. That's the word I always use. It was hopeless, really. So does that take us full circle? Pretty much to the poem we started at the beginning of our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. At that point absolutely. of sheer hopelessness and desperation, and as you say, feeling you you didn't know what to do with yourself or where, where to go. No, no. Um, so, did, so did you concoct a plan, a plot of what you were going to do when you got to the bridge? I mean, was, was there something mapped out? You had it mapped out in your head? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was all planned the night before. I just, I got to this breaking point. I just... It just literally, I remember something in me kind of almost internally breaking. And I just said, I, that's it. That's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to go to that bridge. And this might sound awful, but there was a kind of relief in making that decision. Because I thought, well, finally, you know, there's a way out. I think that's totally understandable, given the position you're in. I mean, you now see this complete clarity of thought. Mm, this is it you're going to leave everything behind you that is crap in your life yeah. and that you can't cope exactly, with. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But what, I, what people can't understand, can, can never appreciate, unless you've been where you've been, is what it actually feels, what it really truly feels like, what emotions you're going through. As you're 
getting on, you're getting up that morning, you're getting on the train, you're leaving hospital, and you're, you're taking yourself to Waterloo Bridge. It, I, I yeah. mean, you're shaking your head. Obviously, I mean, it, it's 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 un, you can't fathom it unless you've yeah, actually been yeah. there yourself, like you have. So you had no, no doubt at all in your mind. This is the day. This is the time. I'm going to end it. Was like, yeah. just cannot go on. Yeah. And once I'd left the hospital, there was no turning back because you know I I I said I said I needed a cigarette, and they let me outside into the grounds. Even though you didn't smoke. Even though I didn't smoke. And they didn't, yeah. and they didn't pick up on that. No, no I mean. <laughs> But you weren't sectioned, so they had no right no, to, exactly. to stop you going out anyway. No, yeah. no. Uh, and so they let me out, and, and I, I ran, I ran, I, I ran as fast as I could. And I, um, and once I'd done that, you know, I, I, there was no turning back. There was no turning back. I, I, I'd done that, and I kind of, I, knew, I said to myself, you know, if I turn back, you know, I'm going to be sectioned, or, you know, I'm going to be in big trouble, so this is it. Yeah, and so um, I went to the bridge, and very... Uh, it's, yeah, it's hard to kind of put it into words, really, that that feeling. Just terror, because, you know, what what you're about to do, you know, terrified, but also there is this sense of, um, you know, kind of, yeah, that relief that, you know, this is fine, you're going to, you know, just the pain is going to end. So a mixture of a mixture of both, really. And then kind of, it was a freezing, again, it was, it was January, middle of January, it was freezing cold, freezing cold day. And I went onto the bridge and I climbed over the barriers onto the edge. And see, after that, my memory is very hazy and I don't know how long I was on there for, on the edge. It's really hard to, yeah, I don't know. I have no... Yeah, it's 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 scary, obviously, even thinking. I mean, my wife and I were down on the South Bank on Saturday and we walked past Waterloo, just by chance, walked past Waterloo Bridge. And I said, oh my God, that's Waterloo Bridge. I'm seeing Johnny on, on Monday. And we just stood there and looked and thought, you've got to be so far down the road in hell in your mind that there's no you can see no way out to do that and correct me if i'm wrong i think you were there with a t-shirt on mm, it was freezing right. cold that's january right. yeah. Yeah. and there's thousands of people walking to and from up and down to work yeah but i mean i was oblivious i was kind of i was absolutely in my own world like i was i was in a bubble really so there was no other thoughts of your in inverted commas real other life entering your thought process like your parents your family oh, because there's always this conversation what people people have about people who take their own lives you know is it a selfish act is it an act because they can't they simply can't cope i i go with, with the latter i don't believe it's a selfish act at all i believe you know, like you were at the end of your tether but the people who were left behind i mean there was a that wonderful um documentary you did um it was called stranger on the bridge i think it was called stranger on the bridge as well and when you met this twin surviving twin and her her brother her sibling killed himself and left no message and the guilt she's left with i mean how does that yeah stupid question how does it make you feel because obviously now you can look back but the thing is i mean well i speak for myself i thought i was doing the best thing for them as Mm. well really really yeah because i've been in hospital for a month and they you know my parents in particular were coming to see me every single day and it was just heartbreaking for for them and for me um, and I just thought, of course, I, I, I knew it was going to be incredibly painful. But I just thought, well, maybe they'll find a, a, a way to somehow, you know, at least they won't have to come and see me every day. Um, come to terms with it. Yeah. They'll understand your rationale for doing it. Mm. Yeah. I just, I just, I really did think, you know, in my head that it was the best thing for not just my parents, but my, my family and my friends. I just wanted to, them to be free of me as a burden. Well, that in itself, to me, demonstrates how far down the line you were. And mm. it's not a selfish act at all, because you clearly 
have a loving relationship with your family, oh, wow, your parents. Yeah. And you wouldn't do, you want do anything deliberately to, to apart from when you were a kid, you slammed your dad's finger. No, <laughs> apart from that. From that yeah. But you wouldn't go out of your way to do anything deliberately to hurt them no, in a rational no, mind, no, would no, you? So no. clearly you weren't thinking rationally at no. that moment in time. No. So we won't, I don't want to dwell on that any more than we have to. It's obviously critical to the story before and after Absolutely, because yeah. what happened next was remarkable hundreds if not thousands of people walked past you but yet there's this one guy mm. whose name you didn't know at the time who stopped tried to engage you in conversation and sort of snapped you out of your train of thought perhaps mm. momentarily oh yeah. oh yeah yeah i mean um he just there was something about him he was you know he came over to me and he he, he stood beside me and uh, he he just stood with me and he started to talk and you know at first I didn't want to engage I, I you know I just wanted him to, to go away but there was something about him that was incredibly grounded and very calm you know he, he's a very warm person he, he's got very warm eyes and I, I think you know just the fact he really wanted to engage with me and he was another young guy and I think on that, his way to work on his way to work yeah, yeah. and I did begin to engage it was I, I just hadn't experienced something like that before you know, in the hospital where I was, it was, it was, of course it was clinical. It was, it was very clinical. You know, everything was done via a clipboard, you know, uh, how are you feeling on a scale of one to 10? And, but this was very human and uh, he had this real empathy and patience, this real patience. And um, he, you know, he said to me, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere and, you know, I'm not going to let you do this. And, I don't know, I just, having someone that really, not that they didn't care in hospital, I'm not saying that, but this guy, he didn't have to, he didn't have to stop, but he stopped and he was just so invested in me. Yes. And I did begin to kind of, yeah. You wavered a bit with yeah, your I desire. Yeah, I did, I yeah. did, I did. Um, well, thank God for that. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I mean, I'm obviously incredibly lucky because it's the fact that he stopped out of everyone as well because, you know, he's obviously a very special person, so very lucky very well he, he's a remarkable person i think some people have called him your guardian angel and you know maybe he is maybe you know maybe he's just a remarkably lovely person warm-hearted kind-hearted person because he stopped hundreds and thousands of other people didn't stop doesn't mean they're not good people no, no absolutely um, they could quite easily not have seen you some of them they could have thought you were drunk they could have yeah, thought yeah, yeah you know oh i don't need to get involved because yeah, i've got absolutely. enough going on in my life absolutely. all that sort of stuff absolutely so, don't blame them they just all. plain didn't care you know it's a combination of all of those things yeah, i guess but yeah. he stopped yeah and that took your life in a completely mm. different and his and, and his, many yeah. other people's yeah. we'll, we'll come on to that i don't want to dwell too i mean you then you lost contact with him because I think you got bundled off into a police car and then I think at this time you were actually sectioned, yeah, in, sectioned in, in, yeah. under the mental health act yeah. into hospital. Yeah. And he went off and you didn't see him again. You didn't know who he was or what his name was. No. And there is a mini story, like a micro story within mm. your story of this hashtag find Mike, which was your um, your attempt to, to discover who, because you didn't know his name, so you gave him a no. name, yeah. Mike. Mike, yeah. Find Mike. Yeah. And... I don't think that started for several years, though, did it? No, you had several years of up and down and good health and bad health and in and out of hospital. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I mean, it was, um, it, was, it was a tough few years. It was a tough few years. My early 20s were my lost years, really. I, was, I, was, I couldn't come to terms 
with what happened or what my diagnosis was. I didn't want to take my medication. I didn't want to talk about it. I couldn't handle my, my sexuality still. But this was all out there in the open. It was, it was out yeah, there now yeah, in the open. Yeah. I mean, everyone knew everything. And but I, 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 couldn't, I, could, I couldn't handle it myself. I, I couldn't until I began to really deal with it. You know, um, I, was lot, I was very lost for, for quite a few years. Uh, finally, in my mid-20s, I began to talk about what happened. I actually started making YouTube videos about about my journey, my story, my experiences. I just found it easier to talk to this this camera, you know, my phone and upload these videos to YouTube. It just it was easier than I still couldn't really sit down with someone and look at someone in the eyes and talk so it's about the it. the anonymity it enables you to express yourself but without mm. as you say looking someone in the yeah, eyes. Yeah. It's too much. Yeah. It's too much. But they proved to be massively popular, didn't they? I mean, you had thousands and mm. thousands of downloads and people following you. Mm, yeah, no, I couldn't believe it. I I just I really I put them out there to well, help myself and also obviously try and help other people. But it's amazing how, uh, well, just the, the comments that I started to get from people all around the world, people saying, you know, I, I've been there. I've been there as well or, or family members been there and or I'm there right now. And because um, I, I felt so alone. I did. I felt so alone. You know, back then, this was a few years ago now, people weren't talking about it as much as they are now. And so I did, I felt very isolated, but realizing I definitely wasn't alone. I was not alone. That was... Uh, Big help. That was a big help to me. Yeah, it's a big relief to know that I wasn't alone. Big relief. So what were you, what were you actually doing? I mean, apart from obviously your times in hospital, mm. um, what were you doing work-wise or study-wise in the, in the next few years? Well, I, did, I went back to university and I, I did finish, but my heart wasn't in it anymore, really. I lost a lot of confidence and sort of... I, yeah, I spent, I spent the next few years kind of in between jobs. And again, it was only my mid-20s when I started to... When I felt more comfortable with the whole world of mental health, that's when I began to enter into it and I began to do work for mental health charities. And finally I started to find a kind of purpose, you know, um, working with these different mental health charities and organizations and meeting other people and um, just finally getting to talk about it. Just, yeah, it was a big weight off my shoulders. And that's what led me to do this campaign to find this, this guy, this Find Mike campaign. Um, it was a charity, a charity called a Rethink, Rethink Mental Illness. They were previously known as? Uh, the National uh, Fellowship of Schizophrenia. That's, that's right, yes. Yeah. Um, so national charity for people uh, living with schizophrenia and their family and their friends. So I got involved with that charity and I, I became an ambassador for that charity. And it was them. They, they were the ones that, you know, I, I, was, I was talking to them about my story and they said, well, that's, that's an amazing story, you know, the, the, the guy that helped you on the bridge and have you ever thought of trying to find him? And I mean, I had, I had obviously thought of, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to, to say thank you, to sit down and say thank you to him. But it just seemed impossible because, yeah, I didn't remember his name or, or, or what it looked like. He could be anywhere in the world, really. So, but they had this faith. The charity had this faith that I could find him and, you know, um, but it wasn't just about finding him. It was also a campaign to get people talking about mental health and, and suicide as well. And so we launched it. We launched it uh, six years to the actual day that we met on the bridge. We launched the campaign to find this guy. And um, we, I just didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to expect. I thought people might hate it. I, I, it's a very sensitive subject. I was, I was a bit concerned how people would respond, but... Yeah, the response was phenomenal. It really was. I mean, well, it was phenomenal. It was probably understating it. I mean, it was 
it was trending beyond mm. your wildest dreams. No. I mean, trending bigger than, you know, some of the, yeah. the hashtag bigger than Beyonce and no, Obama and millions of, millions around the world, yeah, all around the world. And yeah, very su- Support from politicians and prime ministers and famous celebrities, mm. all following the campaign and promoting it. Staggering. Yeah, yeah, oh, it was, it was. It was just very surreal time, to be honest. Did that give surreal. you inspiration? Did that make you, or were you still, you know? It did for a bit, but... Because, you know, I went on a real high, you know, yeah. it launched and everyone was, was involved in it. Then the media came on board and I kind of was on this a bit of this high. But, you know, I, I crashed. I eventually crashed when everything died down. Because um, you had many full storms, didn't you? I think there was yeah. over 30, yeah. you know, would-be wannabes, <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they were, mics. Yeah. yeah. Um, some of them probably genuinely thought they were. I mean, yeah. one guy you even met said he had saved someone yeah, on the bridge absolutely. the same day. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, was that ever verified at all? Did that? No, I mean, you just, it's difficult. You have to take people's words, don't you? You have to take people's words. But I mean, um, some incredible stories came out of it, of people saving other people on bridges. I mean, it really was extraordinary. Yeah, but, but I mean, it was just, a, it kind of feels like a dream when I, when I look back. It was a very strange couple of weeks. Uh, you know, I went on international TV and um, yeah, very, very, very surreal, very surreal. Um, but I wasn't, you know, I, 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 stop looking after myself at this point i kind of was like well i'm 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 you know i'm i'm, I'm uh, immune to, to 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 anything going wrong now i've made made it i've, I've kind of i'm doing well I've, i'm now successful I've, i felt successful i thought you know i i i uh i was getting so many positive messages i thought yeah i'm i'm i'm, I'm now i'm stronger than ever before and uh but yeah i you know i did i, I came i really came crashing down after that because i'd stopped looking after my mental health really um, I kind of got caught up in this whole media storm and um, yeah I found that quite difficult. So you almost got overtaken by events itself which gave you like a almost like a false high. As you say you, you stopped looking after yourself and stopped being aware of your own needs. Probably you were doing too much too soon oh, yeah. you needed to, to, to chill out For a sure. bit and take a bit of a backseat sure. because it's huge and a responsibility on you as well yeah now all of a sudden you got all these tweets and messages and emails coming through did you feel obliged you had to respond Mm. and be there for everybody oh yeah it's a massive responsibility yeah Yeah, no i did absolutely and i and i found that very hard yeah some very unwell people that were reaching out and i i would obviously i would message them and i would try and help them but yeah i felt i was i was i was kind of that neglected i didn't i was neglecting my own mental health i was putting everyone else first which which wasn't very helpful. I think if people want to go into more detail about the story of how you found Mike and Mount mm. Mike turned out to be a very nice chap called Neil Laybourne. Yeah, Laybourne. Yeah. There's a wonderful documentary on Channel Four, which they can find. You can find it by googling mm, it mm. by the, the, the name of the same name of the book. I think mm. isn't it? the Stranger on That's Stranger right. on the Bridge. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful 45 minutes to an hour documentary, mm. which which goes through the whole time frame and with wonderful backstories as well of that whole period in your life. So I don't want to dwell on that too much because that's all out there. But what I, what I want to cover now, if, if I may, is since you've met Neil and since mm. you've, you've started to work together on a number of different programs and projects, but you've, you've obviously now re- realized some time ago mm. that there's a lot of people out there with significant mental health issues, whether it's bipolar, schizophrenia, other forms of mental health. Um, like I mentioned to you at the beginning, my sister suffered from schizophrenia since she was 16. Mm. She's, she's never fully recovered to this day mm. so uh, just fill us in on some of the work you've been doing since then mm. and what what you're trying to achieve as i know you're going to schools i know you've traveled the world you've been to india for example and seen some of the horrific examples of 
care there. Yeah. What is it that you're doing today and what are you hoping to achieve? Uh, a lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot. I mean, um, I'm really focusing and I focused a lot on young people because, you know, as you said, your sister, she was a teenager and so many mental health issues really manifest in teenage years. So trying to really get mental health education into schools, uh, colleges, universities, that's a priority. It's a big priority because it doesn't make sense why we don't, you know, when I was at school, we didn't, we didn't talk about mental health once. The only thing that we got when I was at school was we watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And that was it. That was yeah. it. It's hardly going to give you a, a good impression of mental health. No, exactly. Yeah. That, yeah. Scared, that film scared me. It really scared me. It put me off talking. So if we can get into schools from a young age, then I think it can make a big difference. How, how young do you think? I think in, in, you know, primary school, in your first school, if you can not, you know, not going in saying this is mental health, this is depression, this is anxiety, but, you know, getting them used to expressing their thoughts and their feelings mm. and not feeling um, they have to hide sure. these things away. You know, if they can do that from a young age, it can make a it can make a big difference, I think. So we've been launching programs into schools and I've been going into a lot of schools personally to talk to pupils, teachers um, and parents as well. You know, trying to get parents in and parents engaged, um, particularly in the, you know, in the age we live in, this age of, you know, social media. There's there's a lot of uh, concern, really, about the effect it's having on, on young people. So if we can get in there early and we can talk about it and we can put tools in. That, that allow people to, to, to talk about it, to, to get help. So that's always been my big focus is, is, is young people. But then other areas as well, you know, particularly prisons is a big one for me as well. I, I mean, that, again, you know, we know that 90% of people in prisons have a mental health issue. And again, there's such a lack of support, lack of support, uh, a lack of um, care after someone comes out of prison and they're just kind of left and they often reoffend. I just think there's so much we can do to... Um, well, essentially help people to support people um and it just it, yeah i mean you know i i yeah i go around the uk go around the world and the more i do <laughs> the more i realize you know um how little there is out there how, how much we we have to do how long we have i mean we, we are moving forwards you know we, we're, we're talking about it but well my parents set up a charity as you as you know Called, called Jamie because my sister's illness back in the late 80s and 90s. And in those days, mental health, and this was in any community, let alone the Jewish community, well, wasn't even spoken about. And if it was, it was hugely stigmatized. And they've done a huge amount of work to try and overcome that. And they have. But you're coming along years later and you're saying similar things. It's still a stigma and it's still not being addressed in the places where it matters most, at a young age, in schools, in prisons. It shouldn't have to be addressed in prison. No. I just, no. It, it's just, it's heartbreaking to think. No. Schools are so far in Victorian curriculum, they just don't talk about things that matter anymore. No, no, no. And I mean, you know, as I said, it is getting better. And, you know, the government are, you know, taking steps forwards because they know it's a problem. They know it's a massive issue, but it's just, it feels so slow. That's the problem. It feels so slow. You know, the government have got targets, they've got plans, but, you know, you have to wait years for them to come into place and there's always, there's never enough money. The funding is a massive issue. It's always been a massive issue. It still is a massive issue. Things like research, mental health research, if you think about the millions and millions and millions that's pumped into research into physical health issues like cancer, and then you compare that to all the money that's pumped into mental health research, you just, you can't even begin to compare it. So yeah, there's a long, there's a long, long way to go. But but 
I think we've definitely seen a shift, particularly in the last few years, you know, with like the young royals, you know, Prince William, Prince Harry, Catherine. I forgot to mention, you're, you're in with the royals, aren't you? Well, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and, yeah. and Harry. I just think they've been um, having their voice, having their influence is, is, is yeah. huge. They've it's been huge. very supportive of what you, the work you're doing. Yeah, yeah. they have. They've yeah. been great. But just in general, you know, just, you know, Prince Harry. I remember waking up and reading the news and seeing that Prince Harry, you know, said that he'd gone to get counselling after Princess Diana. Uh, passed away and I just thought that was really quite bold for uh, someone in the royal family to say you know actually I've, I've gone and got help for my mental health and that's okay because um, that's what we need to hear that's what we need to hear because you know if you go back to the suicide rates and you know the amount of men that, that, that take their own lives it's one minute um, one every minute around the world one, one man every minute takes his own life uh, just still so much, do, you, do you think mental much. health in general has gone down in recent years do you think social media has played a part in that or do you think it's just because we're talking about it more openly than we used to whereas before it was yeah. swept under the carpet i think it's a mixture of things i think yeah we, we're talking about it more and, and more people are coming forward to ask for help but you, you can't deny the effect that social media is having and i really think that's a kind of ticking time bomb really i mean you know i'm not saying social media isn't isn't useful because you know who reunited me and neil if it wasn't for Facebook. You took the words out of my mouth. I yeah. mean, if it wasn't for social media, absolutely, yeah. we, we wouldn't be sitting here well, today. Yeah, you're right, absolutely. absolutely you know, yeah. your life would have taken a completely yeah. different path, potentially. Yeah. And yet, I, I, I'm fairly convinced in my own mind of the, the, the downside of it. You know. The comparisons with body image it. and you know, having this material wealth and all this that sort of stuff. It. This is it. And I mean, you know, I, I've met with Facebook a few times and Facebook, no, it's a, it's a, it's a real serious issue. But it just, again, it feels very, very slow. You know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I think they could be doing a lot more, you know, putting things into schools, you know. Um, because teachers, you know, we speak to lots of teachers and they are just kind of overwhelmed. And, and parents and, and young people, they're all overwhelmed by social media and don't know how to kind of navigate it, really. Things like online bullying and, you know. I went to one school uh, was it last year now and... <sighs> You know, the pupils w w were saying, you know, we, we are setting our alarm clocks for 2 a.m. in the morning because, you know, we have, to, we have to go on Instagram to post. And if one person does it, not Instagram, Snapchat, uh, if one person does it, then the other person has to do it, then, then another person. And I was just like, what? Like, this is... doesn't surprise me. No, but it's, it's, it's something that needs to be done. It's obsessive. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, and the, is, it... the makers of these apps want them to be no, obsessive know, about them because no, they want them to be used constantly so they can market to them and you know buy things from them and it's you're walking around with the whole, virtually the whole world in your hand mm. and the, the amount of information you're having to take in constantly Absolutely, it's, it's just enough to drive anyone loopy exactly. it is it really, it is, really it is. is even if you've got perfectly normal health i mean i find myself tapping and flicking in this all mm. the time and I, and I think i'm relatively you know sane yeah, a lot yeah, some yeah, of the time yeah. <laughs> but okay. it, it can really drive you mad yeah. nuts oh yeah it can it really can it really can and no one knows how to particularly young people you know i didn't grow up with with goodness i didn't grow up with any of these things mm. facebook uh, social media I, I i i don't know how i would have coped and i look at my you know i've got young nieces and you know the youngest one is, is four and she can do more than me now on, on an ipad or iphone and i'm just like I, I worry i really worry i really worry and so again we need to be doing more in schools in the family and communities to really talk about this and address it 
because I just it's it it does feel like a bit of a ticking time bomb really um and so that is that is that is a massive 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 priority for me when you start to feel presumably you have signs you recognize now when you think hang on a second I'm I'm yeah. mentally going in the wrong direction yeah, I can absolutely. feel I'm starting to drop absolutely. my energy levels are going I'm starting to mm. what tactics or strategies do you employ yourself to sort of lift yourself up and make yourself feel but obviously I don't know you presumably you take medication mm. all the time I'm yeah, guessing I do. I do yeah but nonetheless there will be times when you go up and mm. down up and down oh yeah you, I think you do some meditation yeah. what, what other strategies to talk us through what some of the things um, you do I also I have therapy every mm-hmm. week okay that's a talking therapy talking yeah. therapy yeah. talking therapy it's called um CFT, which is um, compassion-focused therapy, which is really, really, really interesting. So I've had a lot of therapy, particularly CBT, which mm-hmm. is cognitive behavioral sure. therapy, which is all about your thoughts, you know, looking into your thoughts, changing your your thought patterns, essentially. CFT is, um, I don't know, I feel it goes a bit beyond that, and, and it kind of looks at you more holistically, you know, what's going on in terms of feelings and you know, how can you be kinder to yourself? To yourself. More, yeah, yeah. yeah. More, more self-compassion, more understanding. I mean, my therapist, I'm really lucky with my therapist. He, he just, he, I can tell him anything and he really, he has an understanding of, of my psychosis when it happens. And he just, he can talk me through it. And I, I just, having someone there that, that you can talk to. It's so important it's to have so a relationship vital. with someone who's yeah, constant vital, as well, vital, rather vital. than, you know, unfortunately people move around. If you've got someone through the NHS, they move and you've got someone else, you have to go through the whole story and history again. And you, after a while you think, oh, to hell with it. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. So consistency really hard. and trust is so important, yeah, isn't it? It really is. It really is. It, it, it's so key. Um, and I always say to people, because often people will say to me, oh, I, I had therapy, but I didn't, gel with my therapist and I always say you know well, well, don't give up you know you, you will find someone that, that, that works you have to find someone that you can connect with otherwise it doesn't work and so therapy meditation mindfulness I think that's a oh, it's been a massive help to me you know just kind of knowing that you can switch off for a bit you know you can finally find some peace if you if I if I sit and I meditate for long enough I can finally hopefully find some peace and that makes a big difference and and you know trying to do things like get out of London. I love London. I grew up here, but it's very intense and it's, it's you know, it can be quite overwhelming. So getting out of London and, and, and going into, I find nature is really healing and restorative and going into nature and, you know, yeah, immersing myself in nature and writing. I find writing is really, really important. And connection, connection as well. I mean, it's very easier. When I, when I struggled in the past, I would always close off and, and, and kind of retreat you know, I'd, I'd, I'd lock myself away. But now, even if I'm I'm struggling, I will still try and surround myself with people and I'll talk. And I think that's a big difference, you know, just being honest, that honesty. Uh, it's hard, it's hard still, you know, when you when maybe, maybe you're struggling. But I try and be honest and that, that that's quite a big difference now. Because you're hugely in demand now and have been for some while. So it's, it's even more important, I would guess, for you now in your current yeah. phase of your life to recognize when you're doing too much and when you need to step back and say, sometimes no, saying no yeah. to people. I'm glad it wasn't me today. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes saying no to people is, yeah. is the best thing you can do because you've got to give yourself time to accept you're in, you know, you possibly, your health is going downhill mm. and you just step back and take a moment to relax and understand where you're going to replenish yourself for, for the next absolutely. move. Absolutely. And I think as well, knowing that 
okay, I can get through this, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll overcome this or I can manage this. Because again, before I used to, it was the end of the world every time I had a relapse and I thought I'm not going to get better. This is awful. I, I you know, I, just, I can't keep going through this. But now, you know, again, I've got an amazing psychiatrist, you know, she, she says to me, you know, you, you, you'll, you'll overcome this, this blip. Um, and just knowing that someone has that faith in you, I think that's really key as well. And, and, the, and now I have that faith in myself that, you know, I can overcome, I can overcome and I can manage. And, you know, this isn't the end of the world. It's just another part of the journey. I think that's a, that's a big difference as well. Knowing you can manage it. Uh, thanks for those uh, tips. Very, very helpful. So obviously you recently released your your first book, I believe. Mm, yeah. Well, I don't know, your second book. I think you did a book of poems previously, didn't you? I did you? actually, yeah. yeah. I did, I did. Um, yeah. But this is your first, I don't know, proper book, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Johnny Benjamin and Britt Fluger. Mm, that's right, yeah. The Stranger on the Bridge, A Journey from Despair to Hope, which was released, I think, in May of this in year. May. On my birthday, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, was it I, really? I don't know, yeah, I think oh, wow. so. See, so another coincidence. There you, there you go. <laughs> uh, it, it's a wonderful book. Um, I highly recommend it to everybody to read, because it, it's... It's all about your history in detail from what we've discussed today, but also you know, a lot about the, the bridge, the, mm. the guy and finding Mike or Neil, as we now know him. <laughs> yeah. What, so what's next? Have you got another book in the offing, I believe, and possibly do, yeah. even some film, yeah. filming to do? Yeah, I do. I, my, my second book is The Book of Hope, um, and it's going to be contributions from lots of different people on, on that subject of hope and, and overcoming. Um, because, you know, I go to a lot of, places like prisons or hospitals and I don't know there's a real lack of hope yeah there's a real lack of hope and uh it's sad it's sad hope has always been so key for me uh you know positive quotes or, or just people encouraging me you know people sharing their own wisdom of how they overcame it's been crucial for me so that's what my second book is about yeah um just talking of hope i mean in prisons how do people take to you and your story do they come forward and ex oh, yeah. express their their problems yeah. their issues they've got they do and it's, really it's, it's quite astonishing because you know i go into prisons and you know i'm always quite nervous because i think oh they're not going to relate to me and the kind of middle class guy just rocking up in, yeah. in my I just think, oh, is this going to be... But every time, it's quite amazing. They want to open up. A lot of people in, in prisons, they want to open up. They, they relish the chance to, 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 for someone to be open and honest and so they can be open and honest because they don't get heard. Uh, you know, they, they really don't get heard. And especially now in prisons, I mean, not to go into it too much, but the government seems to think that punishing them even harder and things like isolation are going to work, but they don't. They, these people, they need to be heard. They need to... They need to be allowed to open up and, and talk about what's really going on. So, yeah, it's quite amazing every time I go into prisons. Uh, but not just not just the the sort of prisoners themselves, but the staff, because the staff have to deal with the law. Um, you know, self-harm, suicide. Suicide in prisons, uh, it's, it's higher than ever. It's shocking. And so the staff, you know, they, all the staff you, you speak to, yeah, I, I, I've had to deal with the suicide. And that's, can you imagine? So they have a lot going on as well, and they also kind of relish the chance to talk about mental health. So, yeah. Um, so you got another book, yeah, about hope, yeah, which is wonderful. Given where we started with that poem, which is all about utter despair. Yeah, so from despair to hope, Absolutely. which is which is a beautiful story. Absolutely, yeah. Film, possibly a film, I believe. Yeah, it's very early, very early stages. But yeah, I mean, people just. I'm always kind of. Well, surprised how, how much people are drawn to that story of the bridge. 
you know, m- myself and Neil, we get asked to talk about the bridge all the time in companies, companies in particular, lots of companies. And I just, I'm always amazed, yeah. And I think, because people, you know, in the audience, they say, well, would I have done that? Would I, can I do that? And that's the thing, people, even though it's quite a unique situation, I think, be, me being on the bridge and, and him coming over, it relates to everyone because it could be anyone in that either situation, particularly walking over the bridge and particularly in London, you know, I mean, I don't know the exact figures, but people jumping off bridges, it's, it's a really high number. It's, 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 it's quite, it's more common than people think. And so anyone could be in that position and people do ask themselves, can I, would I, would I be able to do that? And I mean, the one question we always get after our talks is, how, how did you do it? I mean, I don't think I could do that. I don't know. If... How did you do what Neil did? Or no, so how did Neil, they, they say to Neil, they put their hands up and they say, Neil, you know, how, why, why? Did, why did what? you stop? Yeah, why did you stop? Yeah. Because one of the guys on the documentary, who, mm. there's a long shot of you talking to people passing mm, by as you're, handing, right. as you're handing out flyers. Yeah. There's one guy who says, well, I, if I'd have stopped, I'd have got it in the neck from my mate. Mm, that's right, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, it's this thing, you know, you oh, I can't be seen to be, you know, yeah. helping somebody. It's like, giving a pound coin to, yeah. you know, someone who's sleeping rough, yeah. for example. Yeah. Who's going to walk past and stop and be seen? It's such, it's funny because, well, not funny, but, um, oh, what's it called? There's this uh, bystander. This, yes, this bystander thing, apathy, by, I bystander think. Bystander apathy. Yeah. And Neil talks about it a lot where if, if no one, if no one is doing anything, everyone will just follow like sheep. But once one, like when he came up to me, I, I, I wasn't aware, but when he came up to me, suddenly everyone started like, oh, looking in my direction or, or actually, you know, signaling to him, shall I phone the police? Or, you know, it's funny, just one, when one person gets involved, it's like... It's, it's like when you go out to a restaurant, you're looking to go into a restaurant, and yeah. you walk past the window, there's nobody That's in right. there, yeah, and you exactly. don't want to go in. But exactly. when you do go in, exactly, what do yeah. they do? They put you in the window yeah. seat. Because <laughs> they want everyone to see all this, <laughs> and everyone follows. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, we, we are like sheep. We're more connected than, than we think, I think. And... I think that's why people are drawn to this because it's a cl- cliche thing to say, but it is a tale of our time, isn't yeah, it? Really? Yeah. You've got is. the people walking past, you've yeah. got the guilt of stopping, you've got the mental health, yeah. then you've got the social media story. It's a real people story, which is going to be part of a lot of people's lives because you, we go outside and talk to anybody who's outside in reception, bit your bottom dollar. Somebody here will be suffering. We'll oh, know yeah, somebody absolutely. who's suffering from, oh, from mental health. Absolutely. Or, and or absolutely. suicidal tendencies. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's why it's, it's such a powerful story. Mm. But I didn't want to dwell too long on the, fight, the hashtag sure, find Mike sure, because no it's, you've done it a yeah. thousand million. You've done this a million times, I know. But that particular episode, mm. pe- there's a lot out there and people can. Mm. Uh, so you've got the, the new book, Hope. Mm-hmm. You've got a potential film in the offing. Mm. You've got um, your work you're doing in schools. Think mm-hmm. well is it called think, think well. Think well. That's, well. Think, think, that's, that's when you go well. into school think, and talk. Yeah. yeah, I think you're setting up a foundation as well. That's right. And what, yeah. what, what's New happening charity. with the foundation? So the charity, basically, you know, we, we through all our work, we've just seen such a well a lack of funding really for mental health provision. So we said, well. And we, often, you know, we'll, we'll do a talk and people will come up and say, I, I want to give something to you. And, and we say, well, no, can you give it to this charity or that charity? So myself and Neil said, why don't we set up our own charity that we can take that money and we can put it back into, you know, all the, there's so many projects and initiatives and organizations that are doing great work, but they don't get the funding. So why don't we essentially give out grants? It's going to be a So distribute it to specific Absolutely. causes. Absolutely. Right. And some of the, some of the smaller charities and some of them kind of more rural organizations don't they get missed out and there's a lot of focus obviously on, on places like london 
of course, you know, big city, huge city. Uh, but, you know, we're missing out on maybe the, the, the smaller places where, where often they've got the most deprivation. Yeah, no um, outreach and no exactly. funding for care. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, if you're living in the middle of the countryside with, with one bus a day, and how are you going to get to therapy? You know, it's, it's people don't. So, you know, we'd really like to distribute funding more evenly and, you know, to those that desperately need it. Um, so that's the purpose of the, the new charity, uh, Beyond Shame, Beyond Stigma. That's, that's the purpose of it. Well, I'm mindful of uh, your time and that you need to get off. I'm extremely grateful for yeah, you for sharing you. your time, thank you. thank time you. with us uh, and your story again. <laughs> no, no, it's a pleasure. It's, uh, it's lovely to see you in good spirit yeah, um, and, and thank well. You. Thank um, you. I did hear you speak at uh, Jamie yeah, dinner a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, that's the first time I ever, I ever saw you. You wouldn't yeah. have seen me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another face in the, in the distance. How can people find you, get in touch with you? What are the social media? Um, so social media, just my name, uh, Mr. Johnny Benjamin on, on Twitter and Instagram mm -hmm. and Facebook. Um, and there's my website as well, Johnny Benjamin. And on there is all the things that I'm doing, like Think Well, the school program that people can have a look at. Okay, fantastic. Mm. And presumably they can get your book, The Stranger on the Bridge. Mm. Uh, all good bookshops. All good bookshops. And Amazon, of course. Amazon. Which I think yep. is where I got mine from. Okay. Uh, a wonderful book, well worth a read. And if anybody wants to find out more about Johnny, please do check him out. You can also find the uh, documentary, as we said, Stranger yeah. on the Bridge, the Channel 4 documentary, um, which is well worth a watch as well. Quite hard, or very hard hitting. On, you'll find it on YouTube. If you just Google it, you'll find it as I did. Um, so once again, Johnny, no, thank you very you. much. It's thank been an you. absolute pleasure having thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you.